All right, we are in the book of Isaiah this morning, if you'd like to turn there with me, please. Isaiah chapter 52. If you've not been with us, I see a a few new faces, but if you've not been with us throughout uh, this study, we have been working all the way through the book of Isaiah. We started actually a couple of years ago, and uh, we took a break after we got so far and uh, went to the New Testament for a little while, and then we've come back now uh, to Isaiah, and we've been working through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, and so here we are this morning at Isaiah 52, beginning in verse 7. So let's look this morning, Isaiah 52, verses 7 through 12, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, and who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing. You waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations. All the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So here's the picture we have with our text this morning. Um, it's always very helpful to just get our minds in, in this image, in, in particular in the prophets and in any poetic uh, portions of Scripture. Uh, a, a scene is being painted for us that we need to make sure and we transport ourselves to the scene that's being uh, painted for us. And so here we are in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem, you're probably looking for this. There you go. <clears throat> in Jerusalem, we're, uh, we're in a place that uh, needs to be protected and sheltered. And so we have uh, watchmen. We have walls, and we have watchmen, and we have watchtowers. And we don't really operate this more uh, like this anymore, but I think from uh, old depictions and maybe if you've traveled and you've seen castles and things like that, uh, you'll see walls and you'll see watchtowers. And the, the purpose of these watchtowers is that you might be elevated so that you might be able to see a great distance so that you might be warned if, if enemy is coming or you're just looking for a messenger. But you want to have an elevated site so that you might be the first to see so that you might not be caught off guard and... Uh, taken advantage of, right? So you want to have this high elevation. So the picture we have is a city that's under threat from a great enemy, and uh, right now they're waiting to hear news of a battle. So uh, their king, who is the Lord God in this circumstance, has gone off to battle, and the watchmen are there still guarding the city as they should be, and they're waiting for news of how the battle went. And so a runner would come. If you remember the situation with, uh, with David, and you probably do if I describe it to you, um, David was waiting to receive news about uh, victory in battle. And uh, so uh, some watchmen went up and they said, we'll look for him. And so all of a sudden the watchman said, I see one running by himself. And David says, well, he carries news then because it's just one, it's a runner, he's coming. Uh, 
And then they say, oh, there's another one running behind him. And he said, well, he has news too. And so unfortunately for David, one brings good news, that is, they were victorious in battle. However, the other brings bad news that his son has been killed. And so in this circumstance, we see how this kind of plays out, that uh, you might be waiting for news of, of how the battle has gone. Because here would be the thing. Either I'm going to see the people on my side running back with news, or everyone on my side has been killed, but I want to be the first to see the enemy coming for the rest of us. And so in this situation, what has happened? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness and publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Now this comment, your God reigns, means what? You have won. Your side was victorious and the Lord God is the one who has delivered you. So there's good news. That's great. We want good news. And then it says in verse 8, now the voice of your watchmen, so the ones that were up high watching for this news, they lift up their voice and together they sing for joy. Now stop right there. Here's, here's again the picture. Is that you have multiple watchtowers and they see and as the runner gets close with this message, they say, your God reigns, you won. And then they, they say, that's great. And then all of a sudden they start singing. All the watchmen together, they've heard the news and they all start singing together. What, what an amazing picture, right? And so they start singing and then it says, for eye to eye, they see the return of the Lord to Zion. So what's happened is that first the runner came with the message, and then they say, great, that's great news, and then all of a sudden they see something. What do they see in the distance? They see the Lord God himself returning to Zion. Now that, that concept of returning means that it's not the Lord coming to, uh, as if the city is under siege and the Lord is coming to deliver them, to help them. No, the Lord has been out in battle and he is returning victoriously. And it causes all the watchmen to sing together because they see their great victorious Lord returning to them. It's a good picture, isn't it? And then it says, verse 9, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and he has redeemed Jerusalem. Okay, so what this is saying is that no longer is there a threat to your great city. And as we talked about before, this concept of Zion carries a lot of weight, doesn't it? This concept of Jerusalem carries a lot of weight because it's really talking about the people of God. Because of what significance is it if the city is safe, if the people are not safe? Of what significance is it for the city to be safe while the people are laid waste, right? So we have a city that is safe, and he says, so all you waste places that have formerly been laid waste by the enemy, rejoice because that time is over. That time has ended. No more is the enemy going to come in and destroy you. You're safe now, and you're comforted. These are all very good words, aren't they? So we see a victorious Lord coming and protecting his people and then proclaiming a message that you will be safe from now until forever. You are comforted. There is only peace for you because the Lord has been victorious and he's protecting you now. And so we can see why they might break into song and why everyone is called to break into song everywhere. And so this song is just spreading. But then it says, verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
Now we're going to stop right there because the text this morning is in two sections, and that's the first section. So the Lord has bared his holy arm, and every nation has seen it. Not the first time we've had this kind of language because we actually talked about it uh, uh, in the last couple of weeks we've been talking about this. Just look up with your, with your eyes there, wherever it is. Maybe you need to turn a page to the left, but Isaiah 51. Look at verse 9. Isaiah 51, verse 9. Do you remember this? Awake, awake, put on strength. Who, who awake, awake? Well, in this situation, verse uh, 9, awake, awake, arm of the Lord. God, act as you have in the past. Come and be strong. for. And now what does our text say? The Lord has shown his arm and everybody sees it. What, why does it say he's bared his arm? It means he has unclothed his arm. It literally means his arm has no clothing on. And everybody has seen it. Uh, it wouldn't be that intimidating if I were to show you my arm. Okay? You'd say, I mean, you know, you need to sit at a desk less and work out more. I understand. But when the Lord shows his arm of strength, there is trembling. Because no one is more powerful than the Lord our God. And they can see it. And they can see that when the Lord raises his arm for battle, there is no one who can stand. And so the Lord has shown the might of his strength and no one can stand in his way. Awake, awake, O arm of the Lord. And then here we have in chapter 52 that the Lord's arm has awoken. It's, there it is. He's doing it. He's showing his strength and he has delivered his people. It's amazing. Now, that's a general idea of what's happening in our text so far. Do you have that picture in your mind of what, what's being said? So the question might be at this point, so what kind of work is this and what is this in relation to? Is this a work that God has done in the past? Did he literally deliver a city? Um, and if he did, and it was simply a work in the past, of what significance does that have for us today? Well, God delivered a city. Uh, he is good like that, and he might deliver a city again. Uh, that's one way you could put it. I think that would be missing an awful lot if that's where you wanted to take that. I think there is more to be said. And uh, I want to show you this by, uh, flip, flip over with me just for a second to Luke chapter 2. I just want to read a couple of verses there. And I'm going to do it to prove a point about the uh, lack of ultimate fulfillment at, at this particular time in history. Luke chapter 2, look at verse 25. Is this in reference to the delivery of the people from Babylonian captivity? That's really the question. Because you remember, Isaiah's prophetic career is 741, or 742 to 701 B.C. And uh, a little over 100 years later, um, the people of, of Judah are going to be led into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. And then Cyrus comes along and defeats the Babylonians and releases them back to their homeland to rebuild the temple. That's the whole historical situation. Is this a reference to when God would anoint, as he said, Cyrus to deliver his people? Is that the comfort that's being established here? That's the big question. And the reason we need to ask that question is because is that the comfort we should be looking for so it has a historical fulfillment? Or is there another comfort that God was talking about that we get to share in? Did you share in the release of Judah from Babylonian captivity? 
You did not, if you didn't know. You didn't share in that. So the comfort then for us, where would that be? Is there comfort available to us from this particular passage? You understand why we might ask these questions. Is there comfort available to us from these passages? Should we read this and say, our God is a God of comfort and he's giving me comfort and this I can tell from these verses? Or was that comfort for them and I'm simply reading about it? There's two different ways you could take this. So we want to make sure we understand. What is this passage actually telling us? And what significance does it hold for our lives today? Aren't those pretty basic questions? So let's get it right. Luke 2.25, did you turn there? Luke 2.25 says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And he was, a righteous and devout. he was righteous and devout. And what was he waiting for? The consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. So, in other words, this was a righteous longing. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Now, let's go back to our text in Isaiah 52, and I'll tell you why I just read that. Verse 9 says, Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem. If the Lord had comforted his people and redeemed Jerusalem back then, then there would have been no need for a righteous Simeon to be longing for the comfort and redemption of Jerusalem and of his people. The same word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And you know this, well, you probably know this word. You know that the Holy Spirit is referred to as the paraclete, parakletos. You ever heard this word? Okay, so in a different form of the word, it is this peace or this comfort that is, the Holy Spirit is the one who brings comfort, by the way. That's the, the, where, where it comes from, the one who comforts. But they were waiting for comfort. They were waiting for consolation. It's the exact same word. So if God had established ultimate comfort in the delivery of the people from Babylonian captivity, then there would be no need for a person later on to be waiting for God to comfort his people. Does that make sense? If ultimate comfort had already been established then why, is there, why are there people of Israel waiting to be comforted by God? So there was something undone. You follow me? That's a little, maybe that's a little complicated. But do you follow me that the comfort that God was bringing and proclaiming here in Isaiah 52 was not of the historical uh, situation of the delivery of the people from Babylonian captivity because the people of Israel didn't experience lasting comfort in that moment. There was a lot more to come that was going to be of a need for consolation. And so Simeon is in the temple. He's longing for the people of God to be comforted and to be redeemed. And how is this comfort given to him? And this is when it says, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. In other words, how is the comfort of God brought to the people of God? By means of his Christ Jesus himself. Right? Did you follow all that? I took a long road to get there. But did you go with me? So, here is what we see. And back, when we, when we started Isaiah back, when we started our, our uh, study of Isaiah, we started back in chapter 40, and uh, I kind of did a summary of all that was being said. Do you remember that? Were you here for that? And I read this, uh, Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2, and listen to what it says. 
Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Do you remember that? Comfort, comfort my people. So do you, do you also remember that Isaiah is built kind of like a mini Bible? It's 66 chapters. The first 39 chapters are a longing for hope and deliverance. And then the next 27 are about the comfort that God gives through his Messiah, not through Babylonian captivity. Babylonian, the release from Babylonian captivity is simply a foreshadowing of the great comfort and victory that God would give his people through the person and work of Jesus Christ, right? We understand that. God delivered his people, yes, but if they were ultimately delivered in that moment, they wouldn't be longing to be delivered and comforted. It was something to come through the Messiah. So the comfort that God gives is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now, does the New Testament confirm this to us? Look with me at Romans chapter 10. Reason being, in Romans 10, Paul quotes from Isaiah 52. That's pretty good. If we want confirmation and we see that a New Testament author has quoted the text that we're studying, I think we should maybe see what that New Testament author, the Apostle Paul, has to say. I think I'm more excited than, than you guys are. Either that or you're just masking it. That's probably, that's, I'm going to assume that. You're just masking it. Don't, you don't have to mask it. You can be excited with me. Yeah, there you go. Rachel's excited. Thank you. Good. Because what we see is having our, maybe our suspicions confirmed that you know what? This comfort that God gives and this great victory that God brings that everyone's singing about, guess what? That victory is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. That comfort is yours through faith in Jesus Christ. And that's something to sing about, isn't it? Okay, look at Romans chapter 10. We're gonna begin in verse 11, and he quotes from, you'll, you'll see it when we get to it, but he quotes from Isaiah 52, verse 7, in Romans 10, 15. So that's a good little note. If you're a note taker, that's a good little note uh, to make. Every, uh, it says, Romans 10, 11 through 17, for the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. For, and he quotes from Joel 2, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he's following a logical progression of thought. He's saying there's no more distinction between Jew and Gentile. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So he says, how does all that work? And then he starts to ask some, maybe some rhetorical questions. How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of who they have never heard? That's a pretty good question, isn't it? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? Right. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful the feet of those who preach the good news. Quote from Isaiah 52, 7. However, it's not a direct quote. Some words are changed, and one word is omitted. Here's what's changed. How beautiful are the feet is in the plural. In Isaiah 52, it's singular. How beautiful are the feet of the one. So in Isaiah 52, it's a single runner with, a, with, with good news. In Paul's version, it's many people bringing the good news. That's good, isn't it? You already see the connection. Riley sees it. I saw it on her face. As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. What's missing? The mountains. 
Did you notice? Why are the mountains missing in the quotation? Because that locks it into a particular geographical area. How beautiful are the people who bring the good news, which is all of us everywhere. We're bringing the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to everyone everywhere. But then he says, but I've got a problem with that. They have not all obeyed the gospel. And that breaks our heart, as it did Paul. For Isaiah says, and he's quoting from Isaiah 53, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This literally says, those who preach the good news of good things, is what it says. In our text, it says, those who preach the good news. And uh, so, we, we have a word that we use, which is evangelism. And you know that word, and it's a, a strange word. It's unlike an English word. It's because it's really not ultimately an English word. It comes from a Latin word, which comes from a Greek word. Well, that's just kind of how language works, isn't it? And it's taking a Greek word, euangelizo, and then it's taking it into a Latin version, which sounds a lot more like evangelism. And the gospel is the evangelum. So if you're ever reading some kind of text that talks about the evangel or the evangelum, it's, it's, uh, it's talking about the gospel, but it's taking that from the Latin. And what I'm saying here is that the word evangelism is occurring in the Greek rendering of the Old Testament in Isaiah 52. It says those who preach the good news, those who are evangelists, those who evangelize. So it's not a New Testament creation. Did you know that? It's really the point I'm making right now. A publishing of the good peace is not something that just came about uh, through the New Testament. But it's when people are sharing the good news of the work that God has done and how has that been revealed to us? Through the person and work of Jesus Christ. So when we proclaim the good news of what God has done, we are evangelizing. Paul says on multiple occasions that he has preached the good news to not only unbelievers, but also believers. Did you know that you need to be evangelizing also the believer sitting next to you in the seats here? Do you know that we all need the good news preached to us, always? We need the gospel preached to us, that we might come to understand it more fully and be transformed by it. We all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. But Paul has a problem because not all have believed the gospel. And he's saying, if this is such good news, then why, don't it, why doesn't everybody see it as good news? And you feel that as well, don't you? Because we all have those people in our lives. We see this as such great news. Why don't you? This is my everything and my joy and my comfort and my hope and my encouragement. It is my everything, my great treasure. And you see it as absolutely worthless? It hurts. So Paul is saying the same thing, but of the people of Israel. Why? Because he was of the people of Israel, right? Paul was an Israelite. And he's saying, but my own people aren't hearing this good news. And he says, why? They of all people, the ones who have been longing to be comforted by God, they of all people, shouldn't they be the ones that see it? With their long history and all they've gone through, shouldn't they be the ones that have their eyes open to the gospel and their ears to hear what the gospel says? But Paul says, but they're not. Why is this? So we'll just continue just for a few verses here, Romans 10. Romans 10, 18 says, but I ask, have they not heard? Oh, that, he said, so 
Maybe it's that they haven't heard the gospel. But then he says, but indeed they have. For Psalm 19.4, he quotes, the voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. So he says, it's not that they haven't heard. That's not the issue. He says, but I ask, so then did Israel not understand? For Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation and a foolish nation I will make you angry. And then Isaiah is so bold as to say, he's quoting from Isaiah 65, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So this is what happens when that good news finally comes. And people see it, and it comes, and we see the Lord in victory through what he has done through Christ. And the good news is published, and people are singing about it. The people of Israel, for the most part, kill the Messiah. Not only do they not hear it, they are opposed to it. You know, it was the Jews that put Jesus to death. The ones who were longing for consolation put him to death. The Lord's Messiah. So Paul is grieved and he says, why is this? This great news has come to us, but these people have rejected it. And he quotes uh, some passages and and uh, all of this is commentary and application of Isaiah 52, 7, which he previously quoted. So Romans 11, 11, he goes on to say, So I ask, did they stumble that they might fall? By no means. Rather, their trespass, through their trespasses, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. And then it says down in verse 23, If they don't continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. So here's the whole picture. This is a kind of a... a uh, a complex theological situation here. So I'm trying to do my best to, uh, to simplify uh, what, what we could spend probably uh, weeks talking about. But what's being said here is that when the gospel came, when the good news was published, when God said, comfort, comfort my people through the work of Jesus Christ, the nation of Israel, for the most part, was blinded to it. And Paul is saying, here's Why? Because God intended to blind them as Isaiah 6. He quotes Isaiah 6, saying their eyes are blind, their ears are deaf. He quotes from Isaiah 6, saying that's the way it is. And why is that? Because God intended to use their rebellion to bring salvation to the nations. That is his intention. It's not by accident. It's not because God, not this, this didn't happen quite right. But in fact, it's actually all happened according to his good plan. And then later on, It'll say, I need you to know uh, that a partial hardening has come upon Israel. That is, until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so, we understand that God is doing something there for ethnic Israel. And that unfortunately, their hearts and their minds, their eyes were blind to what God was doing, while at the same time, the gospel was being proclaimed to the nations, and they were singing about the God of comfort. So an incredible reversal that it's very hard to wrap our minds around how God might be doing that. He promised ethnic Israel a comforter. And when the comforter came, their eyes were closed to it by the sovereign's workings of God so that they might become jealous of the comfort that the people of the nations have experienced in God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Fuzzy enough for you? Okay. 
all people of every nation, the Lord has shown this great salvation to, and it is available to all. Uh, just one more thing here uh, that I, I, that I, I want to draw a connection with here is uh, Paul. We know that there's a narrative about Paul in Acts 28. Do you remember that? And it talks about him going to be on trial, and he, he's under house arrest. Do you remember that whole situation? Okay, so in Acts 28, beginning in verse 23, listen to what it says. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning until evening, he expounded to them, testifying the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, this is to Jews. Some of them were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul made this statement. Listen to what he said to them. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the prophet Isaiah, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. And with their eyes, they can barely hear. With their eyes, they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand and turn, turn uh, understand with their heart and turn, and I will heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent out to the Gentiles. They will listen. Who are we? The gospel has come to us. This word for Gentiles in our New Testament is the word ethnos, and it means nations. And it's the same word used, again, of our Greek Old Testament version, okay? It's the word ethnos, the words, the nations. So in other words, it's the word Gentiles is said here. So Gentiles is not a particular people group. It's a reference to basically pagan people groups. Those who are not within the covenant of God are the nations. In fact, that word ethnos is translated pagan a couple of times, at least in the ESV. So it's about these, these non these people who are not in covenant with God are now being in covenant with God. And the people who are in covenant with God are blind to what God is doing in all his work. It's, it's unbelievable, this incredible reversal situation that happens when this great good news is published. It's something that maybe we don't expect, but it is what God is doing. So then, what connection do verses 11 and 12 have? Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no one clean thing, go out from the midst of her. By the way, I'm back in Isaiah 52 now. I've taken you all over the place. That's yeah, okay. We're back in Isaiah 52, and we're just looking at verses 11 and 12 now. Okay, so uh, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no one clean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. For you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Okay, depart, depart, go out from there. We have a couple of questions. Go out from there, where? Go out from where? Go out from her. Okay, you want us to go now? When do you want us to go? And I don't even know where we're going from. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. Okay, who is that? Is that us? Do you bear the vessels of the Lord? Who's this in reference to? Who's being told to go out? I want to know. Am I being told to do something in Scripture? That's, that's of interest to me. Or does this apply to them? You shall not go out in haste. Okay, 
I didn't expect to. Why, what, what, is, what do all these things have to do with anything? Because it seems like a separate section of scripture, but it's not. It's connected. Okay, so let's just answer a couple of these. One interpretation of this, which I believe is incorrect, but one interpretation of this is that this is a reference to uh, the situation in Ezra where they are released from Babylonian captivity and they bring the vessels of the Lord that were taken back from Babylon to Jerusalem. I, I think that's not what's happening here because there's no reference to that anywhere. There's a different reference, actually, or a different reference being made. So let's just think about, first of all, you who bear the vessels of the Lord and who that might be because that's who it's directed to. You who bear the vessels of the Lord. Um, there's this word uh, used here about bearing or carrying, carrying and uh, the vessels of the Lord, and it's only used in a couple of situations ever in our Old Testament, and it's used in, in reference to this, the, the tribe of Levi, who was divided into three family units, and the three different units had three different types of jobs, and uh, one of the jobs for this particular line of the Kohathites was to carry the vessels of the Lord. Their job was not to use the vessels of the Lord. Their job was to carry them. The other people would wrap them up and, and take these, these things, and, and so they would finally come, and they would take them, and they would carry them, but they were not to look at them, and they were not to touch them. They were simply to carry them. That was the job of those who were part of this priesthood, that they had a holy work to carry out. And their holy work, set apart by God, was simply to carry the vessels of God but they were still considered part of the holy people of God, the holy set-apart work of God to simply carry the vessels of God. And you might think, that's well, these people, they're in the temple, they're doing the sacrifices, or they're, doing, they're, they're actually using the vessels. Yeah, I can't even go in there and look at them, because if I did, I'd have to be put to death. But here's who this is in reference to. Those people who carry the vessels of the Lord. Why is it talking to them in particular? that is a reference to the priesthood. Why is it in reference to that? Second question, you shall not go out in haste. Why are we being brought to this mindset like we need to leave quickly? I don't even know where we're leaving from yet, but we're, leaving we, we're not going to leave quickly. This is only used, this word, haste, is only used three times in the Old Testament. Here, and two other times, both of those other times are in reference to the Exodus and the Passover. This is the reference. This is what it's going back to. You see, there are two major times that the Lord God delivered his people. What were those two major events? The Exodus. We remember that from Egypt, right? Red Sea situation, Pharaoh and his army. We remember that, the plagues. That was one time. And then the other time is the deliverance of God's people from Babylonian captivity. Those are the two great deliverance events. The one about Babylonian captivity has not happened yet. For Isaiah, he's looking back to when God delivered his people before. And he's saying, as God delivered his people then, it's going to be different this time around because you're not going to have to run away in haste. Do you remember the Passover? And they said, you, you need to get everything ready and eat because you're about, you're about to go. And then they ran and they went and the Lord God was where? Was before them, leading them. And isn't that exactly what our text says next? that the Lord God will be with you and he will be your rear guard. He will go before you. Do you see it? So God is right there with them. God is right there leading them and he is taking his people out from deliverance. Now, go out from where? Go out from her. Who is that? 
where are these people leaving from, and why are they considered a priesthood? So we have these priests being told to go out from somewhere, but you don't need to go in haste because the Lord God is with you. If we can understand this properly, it might have application for us here and today. That is, if we can identify ourselves with these people who carry the vessels of the Lord. If this is not us, then it does not have direct application. But if this is us, it has direct application to us. So here's another exciting part that we're finally getting to, is that this is quoted by Paul in 2 Corinthians 6. And guess who he applies it to? Believers in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 6, we're going to look at it. You think if Paul applied this, this direct text right here, depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, that's what he's quoting. Do you think if Paul related that to new covenant believers in Jesus Christ, do you think he was right or wrong? You think there's any chance that he was wrong? He got it messed up? He didn't know what he was reading? For many reasons, the answer is no to that. Paul got it right. So we can be confident that what is being spoken of here has direct application to us believers in Jesus Christ. Which may be shocking from maybe a simple reading of this text. What does this have for us? Right? When we read these kind of, what does this have for us? Well, Paul thought it had an awful lot for us. Let's look at what he said. 2 Corinthians 6, beginning in verse 16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? You already, you getting back in the mindset of what this text is? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from them, says the Lord God. Touch no unclean thing. There it is. It's a direct quotation. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Then look at what he says. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. You see what he just did? He took this passage from Isaiah 52 in verse 11, and this depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, Do you know what he took that to mean? That believers in Jesus Christ ought to be careful to purify themselves as those who are leaving, departing, but not in haste, not in flight. What does that mean? Not in haste and not in flight. I'll I'll take you to one last place as we're we're closing closing here this morning. uh, Peter takes these concepts and he brings them all together. So Paul has quoted here and he has said this is direct, these promises to us are, are directly related to us, those who are in Christ Jesus. And he says that we are these people who are to be pure. We are these people who are to be purifying ourselves. He's identifying us with these who bear the vessels of the Lord, with the priesthood. He's saying, this is us. You are being brought out. You need to purify yourselves. You need to be careful that you're being a pure people, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord, right? That's what he just said to us. It applies to you and it applies to me today. This is how we are to conduct ourselves. Peter says this in, I think, just in a way that we need to hear. He's taking everything we've talked about, however convoluted it has been this morning, whatever has been said this morning, 
Paul, or Peter is bringing these concepts together, and I think it's all going to come together right here if it hasn't yet for you, okay? 1 Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. By the way, the text is not convoluted. I am. Just so you understand what I'm saying. First Peter 2, beginning in verse 4. <clears throat> Take all that is being said in Isaiah, all that Paul has just said about how these promises belong to us who are in Christ, but how does it all work together? What is being said exactly? Peter says it right here for us. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a, what's it say? A priesthood. To do what? To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, he's going to quote from Isaiah 28. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. They stumble as, uh, because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you see all, all these concepts are coming together right here? A priesthood, a holy people, those who are destined to disobey the word, the Israelites, those who are not a people but are now God's people. See, all these concepts are coming together right here. And then he fin finishes with this. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, exiles, those the fleeing ones, those who are leaving. Where are we leaving? Exiles. We're not at home. We're going home which means we're in travel. We're leaving somewhere, going to another place. Where are we leaving? This place, this earth, this evil. That's, that's the reference there. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Stop. The Gentiles, I thought we were the Gentiles. This reference now comes to mean the Gentiles are the people who are not God's people, right? Because we are God's people, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's all who are believers in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, that's you, and if that's you, then you are no longer Gentiles in the sense that you are a cut-off people from the Lord. You are now the Lord's. So the Gentiles then are the unbelieving, whereas we as God's people are the believing, Right? So he's saying, keep your conduct as God's people honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they might see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So we are to proclaim the excellencies of God as a holy people who have been given this great news of peace, and we are to be a people who rejoice and sing. I have a couple uh, 
sentences here of summary that I want you to take with you. And the first is this. We are to be a people dedicated to the Lord, those who live our lives in service to Him. If you didn't get that from the text today, it is there. We have a job to do. Do you, do you see your lives as dedicated to the service of God? My life is not mine. I have a job to do. Do you see your life in service to another or in service to your own pleasures and desires? In service to yourself? If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, your life is not lived in service to yourself. It is lived in service to your Lord. And so if our life is not ours and it's in service to God, how should we conduct ourselves? In purity. Putting away these things that are of the earth that we're leaving. We're leaving here. We need to put away all these things. Purify ourselves. Now, is the work of purification something that we actually do ourselves? No. It's understood that the Holy Spirit is doing this as we come to understand all that God has said and as we grow together in sanctification, which is why it's so important. I'm talking kind of fast here, aren't I? I'm excited about it. It's all, all this has to do with us growing together in the Lord as we all are partners in the service of God together. All of us. Yes, I have a particular task. I am not a priest. You understand that? I have a job within the body. You have a job within the body. We are partners together, working to give service and glory and honor to God. Everybody has their part. You're doing your part. Do you know the church, the body, the believers are depending on you to do your part? Every part needs to be working and functioning. Are you doing yours? We are to proclaim the excellencies of God, his work of redemption, the comfort that God brings to the world. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Do you live your life as a sermon? It might be interesting to think of it that way because it's talking about your conduct. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Whoever sees you in this life, do you know that the way that you talk, the way that you dress, the way that you interact with the world around you, everything about you is a living, acting, breathing sermon to them? And what message are they getting from that? Do they see the good news? Do they see that something is different about you? Do you live your life in song, rejoicing in the great comfort that God gives? Or do they hear complaints and whining and how bad we have everything, right? Is that not our temptation? There might be a temptation to be that way because that's the way the world is around us, but we're to put that away. Rejoice in the peace that God has given. And, and then uh, very, very much connected to that, we're to keep ourselves pure and holy, being careful, cleansing ourselves from evil, cleansing ourselves from evil so that God might see that he has had victory over the sin in your life. You know, when he saw the messenger coming, he says, your God reigns. He has been victorious. Over what? Over what? What has he defeated? Sin and death. Does your life show that God has defeated that in your life? Is there victory over sin in your life? And other people see it. You're different than you were. 
You're living your life differently. To your, and that's, a, that's, that's the gospel on display. How is it that you're different? Let me tell you. People notice. Do you know that? People notice your life. They see you. More significantly, God sees you. What is our life? Does it show the world that your God reigns? Because it should. Let's pray.